0: Hello, I'm Frank Vitz, and I opened the Stargate.
1: You had just an extraordinary career that kind of defines the history of CGI and history of CGI. Projects along the way, you know, starting out in movies, you know, transitioning to games and working in VR. I did an interview with Jeff Kleiser. Yeah, and it was like every other sentence. Yeah, we got to thank Frank Fitz for that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) oh
0: yeah, thank Frank for that also. You know, so um, I'm actually uh, working with him right now, and he's got another project in the works that uh, uh, I can't really talk about it, but it's the other kind of thing where he he always has the great vision about what's possible, and he goes, "Yeah, we can do that." Frank, how are we going to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Jeff's made an amazing career, you know,
1: because his timing was also from the beginning of CGI till now. That's right. The way I usually start out these interviews is
0: by asking you where you grew up, where you went to school. Okay. I was actually born in Tucson, Arizona. My Parents moved to uh, California when I was very young because for health reasons for my parents. So I was lucky to grow up in Southern California, you know, learning about model rocketry and uh, studying math and science in school. I never knew exactly what I was going to do. I I thought I would go into something having to do with technology. When I graduated from high school, I had an opportunity to go to, uh, um, I could go to Stanford or to Occidental or to a couple other schools, and I picked Occidental. So I went to Occidental College in Los Angeles. But then I met my wife, Andy Savage, there, and we kind of branched off into a lot of other adventures. We studied abroad in Italy. I knew that I was going to be trying to do something that involved art and technology from an early date.
1: What was the trail
0: that eventually led you to Robert Abel and Associates? <laughs> so... When I graduated from school, actually, I graduated from Chapman University in Orange. I moved When we came back from Europe, I went back to uh, school at Chapman, got a job as a waiter like a lot of people do. But I decided that that was the beginning of the microcomputer um, revolution. So I decided I needed a microcomputer. So they were expensive at that time. So I told my wife that I wanted to build my own. So I set out studying how to build microcomputers and built a uh, S100 bus computer with a Z80 processor in it from Chromemco. And I brought home bags of parts and gave them to my wife. I said, you're going to make the RAM board. I'm going (laughs) to wire wrap the disk operating system board. And so I taught myself all about microcomputers because I thought somehow computers was going to be the future. This guy, a friend of a friend, caught wind of the fact that I was doing this and he was building a company up to do automation for industry. He was uh, a graduate of, uh, his name was Chris Knudsen. He had a company called Knudsen Systems, and they were all about microprocessor control systems for automated manufacturing. And he hired me and I started working on stepper controlled motor systems and solid state interfaces to control devices. It was fascinating stuff, but I was unhappy because it was all pure technology. There was no art involved. So. I cast around, and this was like in 1979 or something like that, and saw this company called Robert Abel and Associates that appeared to be using motion control technology and a lot of, you know, combining a lot of different technology together to produce what we called multimedia in those days. And so I thought, how the hell am I going to get him to hire me? I'm just a guy who was a waiter, you know, with a degree in communications who's built his own computer. So I prepared a really elaborate resume to send to him that actually worked. It was one of these things where Bob Abel would go out to uh, go out to Palm Springs with a stack of resumes. Very popular company at that time. And, And he'd sit there. No, that's no good. Oh, this, no, that one's not good. Oh, this one looks nice. What a nice envelope. I'll open that envelope. Oh, look, it's in a really well embossed folder printed on high quality paper typeset, no less. Oh, I'll open that up. And then it went there and I, I, spun the story that because I knew how motion control systems worked and had a degree in art, that I was the perfect person for Robert Abel. And he says, oh, I'll give him a shot. <laughs> so I came in to get an interview with, with Bill Kovacs. And that was my first introduction to the company. Well, this,
1: this is amazing that I'm now talking with someone, first of all, who's been a friend for years. And yeah. second of all, that was there at Robert Abel in the Belly of the I mean it's not the beast, but I mean that (laughs) that was the greatest thing that was happening on the face of the planet at the time.
0: It was the convergence at that time because Robert Abel and and associates had motion-controlled cameras, it had down shooting animation stands, it had you know cell animation, it had live action, miniatures, optical printers, you know, all that stuff. And they had the nascent software in CamCon and direct and a few other things that attempted to tie all of that together into a coherent whole so it was it was a uh yeah it was like the birthplace of a lot of the stuff we do today and so did you personally did you hang out with bob abel i, I did he uh he uh interviewed me and he was uh it was pretty funny because I was in his fancy office on the corner there, Highland and Romaine, when he was interviewing me for the job and uh, he was talking about all this stuff and all of a sudden he started unbuttoning his shirt and taking his shirt off and I went, oh, what kind of an interview is this going to be, you know, and then Priscilla, his assistant, walked in with a, um, with a tuxedo on a on a hanger, and he said, sorry, Frank, I'm going to another awards ceremony this afternoon, and I have to put on my tuxedo, but I really want to keep our interview going here, you know, and so he changed into his tuxedo while he was interviewing me, and then he he finally says, you know what, you should talk to Bill Kovacs, and I I think there's a place for you here, or something like that, and I was just, I was thrilled. Wow,
1: well, that's fantastic. I just this is a side note, and and I don't know if I'll even put it into the uh, project. But at the time you were there, I was at a company called Image West. Yeah, I remember Image West. And Image West was just a block south of you on North Highland. Um, <laughs> we we were at North Highland and um, um, oh god, I'm trying
0: Willoughby. Willoughby, um, yeah, I know I where sorry. that was.
1: Yeah, so it was just like a block or two south of where, and I had no idea that all of this amazing stuff was going on two blocks. You know, I could have, at, at lunchtime, I could have walked over to uh, to Abel's, but uh, I was at Image West, you know, working on Scanimate's at the time. So, crazy. Scanimate, what a technology
0: that was. I remember we had a saying, um, that signpost up ahead, Highland and Romaine, you just crossed over into the Abel zone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great.
1: Um, and were you there when Christina Hills was there? Did yes, you, did you I was. Because work I, I worked with her uh, years later at Industrial Light and Magic. When yeah, that's very cool.
0: There were so many people at Robert Abel and Associates that founded and went on to do so many other things. I started there as a technical director. That's what they they were hiring me to take the position of the guy who was in charge of motion control systems, not surprisingly, because they built all of their own stuff. They had camera G with the tracked cameras and all that, because the guy whose job it was to, con- who was in charge of that department had committed suicide. So I went, oh, this is not a uh, auspicious beginning. But, but Bill Kovac said, you know, Frank, you're not, uh, you're not just a hard worker. I think you'd be a better technical director he put me there and introduced me to Kenny Merman and to Steve Cooney and Randy Roberts and all those types of people. I started working on bringing ideas to life rather than just bringing machines to life.
1: Did you work on that Randy Roberts piece uh, with the the Memphis style characters with the parasol?
0: Yes. Yes, I did. By that time, I was in charge of the, we called it the raster graphics department. Abel ran Evans and Sutherland picture system, vector graphic systems, which we used to to simulate and preview what it would look like to look through a model camera or miniature camera or whatever. All that software, and it was capable of making really high-resolution vector images, which were used on um, the black hole intro and for um, some of that sort of thing. But we couldn't do shaded raster graphics, 3D scanned graphics, and so I was instrumental in Moving into that area and inventing the first version of ables um rastrographic system. And Randy Roberts' project, High Fidelity, was the inaugural project for that. It was an in-house project. It wasn't for a client, but it was meant to show the potential of it. Um Ann Kerbell was the technical director on it, and uh I was pulling my hair out, trying to get our Iconis frame buffer to capture the beautiful stuff that they were coming up with. I was right there in it, but I didn't, I wasn't the technical director with Randy at the time.
1: But that's, it's still just an amazing era because before that, I remember Abel did that folded paper airplane that flew through all those environments, and that was just wireframe. That's and, right. and and it it knocked everybody's socks off at the time. And then, you know, just the following year or, or you know just a couple of years later, um, now we're looking at fully rendered, shaded,
0: texture mapped, uh, hierarchically animated 3 d. That's right. It it was an explosion in stuff, you know, and, and early on when I was working with Kenny Merman, we attempted to do shaded graphics using the Evans and Sutherland system, we would, we did uh, a series for TRW all the changing, changing pictures and um, you know, tomorrow is taking shape at a company called TRW with uh, birds and fish, uh, all those sorts of things. And they combined hand animation and vector imagery, but we tried to shade them, we tried to fill them in, tried to make them look solid because the vector images were always transparent, but it never quite, even the stuff we did for Tron, the opening title sequence was done using the vector graphics and um, it flickered and had all kinds of weird anomalies. So it was definitely a time of transition, you know.
1: Speaking of transitions, you just made one to Tron. Yeah. So tell us a little more about, because, you know, I I think our companion uh, subscribers are really interested in movies and and how the stuff was actually used in things that they remember from their childhoods, you know? Right,
0: right. Uh, Richard Taylor was a former art director at Robert Abel and Associates, and he was always known for doing really crazy stuff pushing the technology to the limit i think he worked i'm not positive but i think he worked on some of the seven up commercials and things like that and he had gone off and unbeknownst to us unbeknownst to me anyway because i'd only been there at Abel's for a few years when he came back with um this project called tron it was a uh, lisberger's idea of a world inside the computer most of the people were afraid to do it because they thought that it was too wild and too crazy uh, and kenny merman and i just went I'll do that. i I would love to work on that. So we had no idea what we were getting into, but we went into it. And while they were still in the process of selling the movie, we did a trailer or a teaser for it, which had this city of lights using the Evans and Sutherland picture system. The idea would be that you'd see what looked like a city at night flying over, like Los Angeles at night, and then it would transition into circuitry with electrons flowing along the streets and you would go on into the into the game world. And that Richard Taylor loved it so much that it became the it segued us into doing something like that for the title sequence for Tron, which looks really primitive by today's standards now, you know, but at the time, oh, 3D flying over a city at night and now we're in a computer. What's great
1: is it's making a comeback. Yeah, you know, I keep hearing from a lot of people that they're trying to emulate the look of the old stuff now. You did the title sequence for Tron. Did you do right. any of the other work in the film? I know the,
0: the light cycles were, uh, what, NYI? Magi, I believe. Yeah, Magi. Yeah. Right. They used the procedural combinatorial geometry, and they were advanced in, in shading stuff. We did the, um, Kenny Merman and I, and of course all of the other people, Kim McGovern and, uh, was on the team, and several other people um we also did we called it uh Flynn's Ride or the real world to game world transition where you know Jeff Bridges gets digitized sucked into the computer and hauled through this kaleidoscopic digital world to land on the world of Tron who actually built a stable optical bench and used that to build our own film recorder with a flat CRT screen because we had 6, by 6,000 Addressable points, which is a lot of resolution, but it's all just vectors. But we wanted it to be stable enough that we could shoot a camera at it and shoot multiple passes. So we wouldn't be limited by how much data the system could show at once. We were traditional animators, schooled in that. So we came up with the idea of layering things. And so some of those shots would take, um, you know, 24 hours or more, 30 hours in the darkened room with the film recorder capturing pass after pass. And the way we got the illusion of depth and solidity was by carrying BiPAC mats, you know, actual pieces of film that would hold out part of the uh, film from being exposed by the light on the CRT screen. And we could create the sense of solidity and depth. And the camera would roll back and forth, back and forth, you know, and sometimes you'd have to go in there and change the filters. We'd have like a diffusion filter or a little star filter and all those things. And that often fell to me. So um, I would sit there in the Evans and Sutherland room, you know, managing the computer while it was doing this Ah, uh, Frank, it's time to change the filter. And I changed the filter. And so we had a uh, it turned out we had a light leak. We thought we had a light leak in the computer. I mean, in the camera system. So we uh, on that real world to game world translation, where the camera is flying down through this tunnel and there's all kinds of, you know, effects flowing past you. I had to go in there into the room and we taped up the door so there no light could get in, and I had a couple of bottles of water and a pizza and stayed overnight because we didn't want to take the chance of you know a spurious light leak ruining the shot, and you know so. It was bleary eyed, you know, 36 hours later or whatever it was, it was at least 24. Um, I came out and the shot was a hero. And so I was really pleased about that. And it turned out what we thought was a light leak was due to the uh, film going through the camera. The main film and the mat film would be separated and then come back together, separated back, come together as the BIPAC mat would uh, push it past the gate of the camera. And that was creating static electricity, and the static electricity was causing flashing onto the film. And the place where we changed the mats most frequently was right when you went through the tunnel around the corner. It created these blue flashes, and Kenny Merman looked in and goes, "You know what? Free animation. That's we'll keep that effect."
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just such a classic story because I mean today you know, well, why not just digitize it and paint out those frames? Exactly. We, not, have, we didn't not. have that. No, we had, <laughs> did not have that option. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy looking back. Uh, and, you know, what's great is that this, th- these changes have happened so fast that it's still within the memory of the people who used to do it that way and, and now do it, you know,
0: uh, digitally just, you know, in a microsecond. Yeah. I mean, you could do a better job uh, than we could do on the um, on that tunnel sequence today in after effects, you know, probably in a few hours. And it would be higher resolution. But it wouldn't have all those interesting little pops and flickers and things that make it look sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, primitive, yes, but also sort of genuine or
1: something. Well, that's the effect that all these people who are just now discovering what we did, you know, 30 40 years ago, people are just now discovering it and that's the thing that they all keep saying there was just something about it and wh- what we know is that they were the limitations that we were just having to deal with but now everybody loves them so yeah, I,
0: I, yeah. what what a great uh, what a great time to be alive yeah Kenny Merman and I remember uh, late one One early morning, you know, when the camera was finishing up a shot, we were talking about how the visions we had for Tron were uh, so spectacular but limited by the technology we had to work with. We felt that we had done a good job trying to bring it to life but we, uh, and we knew even then that this was going to be just a step along the way and that what we had done would look primitive by future standards but We felt really excited to be at least getting people to look at at that. You know, in those days, computer animation in the movies was not had not ever happened before. So we knew that there was going to be a lot of stuff that would eclipse this, but at least we were part of the birth of that whole new way of seeing things.
1: Well, that's great. And so, before we move on from Robert Abel, do you have any other? recollections from that particular period of time I know you you achieved you rose to
0: management level Oh, I, I did I was uh it was great because I Bill Kovacs was basically my mentor and and he was the one who was in charge of the software system there but um Robert Abel and associates always Built its own software just for its own productions, and so to commercialize it, it was never a very viable option. Bill Kovacs felt limited by that and wished that he could do more. So he actually left and formed Wavefront, and took everything that he had learned at Robert Abel Associates and built the Wavefront software package. And when he left, he turned over to me the running of the software department and the R and D at Robert Abel Associates. And so when when Bob Abel saw what Wavefront was able to do, he said he turned a lot of our resources toward trying to take the ABLE software, which was never intended for prime time use by others, and to try to turn it into a commercial thing. I argued that it wasn't a great idea, but it was a great idea, actually, because people knew how to use it. We had built a suite of tools that uh, mimics everything that you see today, an animation tool, a compositing tool a painting tool you know all these different things it all worked but it was pretty um fragile that was
1: the able image research which that's i know right our, our our everybody knows
0: joan collins she was uh, selling that right that's right we we actually sold quite a few copies of it to a german company St- stein steiner i think steiner um some schools and things like that that was ill-fated in terms of it did it it was the one of the contributors to the zeitgeist of what what constitutes a digital animation studio software package uh but that was kind of the closing chapter of abel's was when that was happening so yeah of
1: course bob abel passed away
0: yeah but he had he had a knack for finding people like us you know and bringing them together and throwing them into the pot you know and seeing what would come out of it <laughs> And, and, you know,
1: the entire history of computer animation is the better for it. You then made a transition to, well, we we talk about Wavefront and Bill Kovacs going to start that. I know that you worked with Jeff Kleiser, like I did for many years on Wavefront. That's Um, right. So what was, uh, let's see, what, what
0: came next after Robert Abel for you? Well, I decided I wanted to be a consultant. So I set up Frank Bits Technical Consulting, the banner under which I would do work for people. I actually worked for Kovacs here and there, you know, writing little tools. And I worked on Compact Disc Interactive, which was one of the first sort of CD-based interactive things. And then Jeff started having some very interesting projects. I actually met Jeff at Bob Abel's because Jeff was working on the bit character for Tron. And he would come and Visit with us, and so we hit it off. And he's—he always had really ambitious vision, still does, you know. And so we started collaborating. We collaborate on a lot of things from like nineteen, it must have been nineteen eighty-eight through two thousand or so. And you and I worked together on several of those projects.
1: Yep, absolutely. All of us worked together on Stargate, and and we know that there's a big Stargate fandom in uh, the companions you know, viewership. So you met Jeff in 88? and
0: Yeah, or 87, something like that. I can't remember the first commercial project we worked on, but we had ideas of uh, uh, Jeff's idea of synthespians, you know, uh, computer generated characters that could act and, you know, take on a life of their own. Still uh, a it's just now coming to fruition the way we envisioned it in those days but uh and no one knew what we were talking about he came up and he and diana came up with the idea of um you know dozo as a character to uh carry a message about climate change and the the world you know that we're causing our own ruin timely even today for for heaven's sake you know um but the I, motion capture was um what we wanted to do we wanted to be driven by a real a real person Perla Battaglia, I think was her name, uh, who is the singer in the song that I believe Diana wrote that song, I think I'm not positive. Um, Don't quote me on that, but uh, it fell to me to try to figure out how to map the independent points of a motion capture system onto a hierarchical skeletal animation that had not been done in those days yet. So um, we uh, came up with something that sort of worked and the motion capture system was capable of capturing about 20 seconds worth of animation that was that was usable. So we looped that and made the dozo thing uh, come to life. Um, and Jeff and I were both sort of um, starry-eyed about that. And we realized that this, as, as um, primitive as that was with its little glitches and stuff, the potential for characters created and animated in that way was just over the moon. It gives me chills just to think about, <laughs> you know,
1: we're, we're talking about the, the very first time two people were talking about doing this. And now, you know, it's something that everybody in the uh, in the world has seen over and over and over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I thought of an interesting aside there. Um, yeah. Because how did I get to that point of hierarchical animation through mocap? We, there was a project that we were talking to, um, this company called Biovision, and um, when I was at Ables, but it didn't come to fruition. So when I when Ables collapsed, I went off and worked with them because I realized that they had this idea of using motion capture to analyze the performance of athletes, in particular golfers. Capture a golf swing, and you could um, you would be able to analyze it and maybe help golfers become better. Plus, golfers have a lot of money, so it would be a good place to, to try to commercialize that. So we took my ideas of hierarchical animation driven by mocap and um, implemented it into a piece of software that was intended to be commercial for capturing the performance of a swing it was a short duration just one swing and then you could look at the velocity of the club head and all that sort of thing and um that where your knees were and give a person a a tape to take home with them with exercises on how to improve their golf swing based on the capture based upon you know real data about how their swing was and that capability was the framework for being able to capture that's where we that was the crucible in which we tested the um, ability to capture motion data and convert it into a hierarchical form that could drive a, a 3d character. And so we were set up well to try to do dozo and then you know everything else just flowed out of that. Today you can buy a motion capture system and um, run it on your iPhone.
1: Another thing that people don't think about is if you watch the Dozo animation, you'll see that her body is responding to the to the motion capture quite well. But there's no skinning that's taking place to keep the body parts together and and to to hold the geometry in place uh, on, as as a top level um, activity after the motion capture to, to exactly.
0: keep the geometry in, intact. Um, yeah, the the whole problems of multiple targets on the outside of the body being able to be interpolated into where the real joints would be to you know to create the underlying motion of a skeleton and then musculature over that and skin sliding over that we we thought about all that we had no no computer fast enough and nor time to be able to solve those problems like you can today but yeah it, so it's it's very um uncanny valley the way she moves you know <laughs> Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, uh, just as a side note uh, in 98, we were working on the mummy. Yeah. We developed all the, at, at, industrial light and magic, you know, and I was a, a CG uh, supervising sequence and um, we developed technology, not only to keep the skin together, but to emulate the movement of muscles underneath the skin and you yeah. know, all that stuff. So it, it's, you know, these, these were the humble origins of, uh, of this technology that we take for granted now.
0: It's, it's so fascinating how it, there are so many people that contribute to it as it gets further and further along. And um, things that were prototypes for us have now been incorporated into off-the-shelf tools that you can buy. It's amazing. Absolutely. I'm just looking at your
1: IMDB right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got a bunch of stuff up here. Um, yeah, I've got your AMD profile. I've got all kinds of stuff in front of me here.
0: Did you send one of your bots out to, to troll me on the web to find out? You know,
1: again, dude, you're going to the AI solution. I just <laughs> use brute force. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so it goes Tron in search of the
0: obelisk. So, Oh, yeah.
1: let's let's talk about what you did um
0: on the luxor project oh man that was uh, another crazy and uh, visionary project by doug trumbull you know that because uh, of my connection with jeff and also because uh jeff was in the berkshires and trumbull had his thing out there we became involved in the project even though it was for the luxor hotel in um in las vegas but it was super ambitious and it, and it had tr- Trumbull's uh, show scan type technology, 60 frame per second, Vista Vision, uh plates, you know, it had, had a number of unusual formats, kind of a dome screen format for this motion based ride part of it. And God, I was just like in hog heaven, you know, because we had money and the, you know, all these great technologies and things we wanted to try to figure out how to do with it, you know, and so I could contribute not only to the technology, but to the look of it, which is always my uh, sweet spot, right? <laughs> oh, I mean, we had procedural flame animation. I wrote a little particle system that uh, we used for these blobby creatures that looked like they were made out of water and then they turned to glass and then they turned to armor. And there was uh, there was uh, the first, um, Fisheye lens distortion correction program that I wrote was for that. As a matter of fact, also um, I don't know. There are so many things we could say about that, but that was a really fun project because it um, it pushed the envelope in terms of the the veil between the you know the, what you're seeing on the screen and reality. You couldn't tell. Uh, Trumbull's goal was to make you not. Able to tell whether what you were seeing was really happening there or was happening behind the screen. So, for our, our listeners, I just want to say that what this was,
1: this is one of three attractions, and it was a showscan presentation where the audience felt like they were watching live people performing in front. That's of right. Them. It felt to you, is sitting in the audience, like you were watching a guy on stage but it wasn't. It was the show scan, 60 frames a second, high resolution imagery. And the the stage was dark, everything was dark. And it really looked like that guy was there in front of you. And then at some point, you, this, this thing starts happening in the sky. And you look up and it's this amazing CGI where these um, dancing characters a male character and a female character they're made out of water and then they're made out of glass and then they and and they're doing this beautiful dance and then it starts getting violent and they start you know fighting with each other and wearing armor and um and it all felt like it was happening right there in front of you and you could not tell that it was being
0: projected on a screen. Yeah, it was it was mind blowing. And and Trumbull was such an expert at setting the audience up and, uh, and planting the seed that, it you know, because the, the show scan was actually running as you as the audience was filing into this into this um, auditorium. Right. And you didn't know that, though. So you just saw the stage with a light grid overhead. People are sitting down talking to themselves. And then a technician walks across who you don't know is on on film. And then another one walks across in front of the screen. So all this stuff is making sure that he has completely blurred the and he fact knocked that the something screen... over, didn't he? He like knocked something yeah, over. Yeah, there's a, a look... light grid falls down and a guy comes out on a ladder and puts it back up. And that was part of the film rather than part of in front of it. So by the time the the interviews that led to all that crazy animation started, you believed that what you were looking at was all happening right there on the stage. It was that was a brilliant setup. And then we hopefully paid it off with the with all the magical effects. <laughs>
1: uh, that was an awesome project.
0: So um were you on that project? I I, I supervised
1: the um the theater of time, the 70 foot tall VistaVision screen elevator.
0: With, uh, yeah, no,
1: the 90 degree VistaVision. So it was
0: a 70 foot tall screen. That was insane. It made you feel like you were going down into the heart of the the underneath Las Vegas, because unbeknownst to the, most people, there was a secret crystal down there that made uh, you more likely to win if you were to gamble at the Luxor Hotel.
1: Ah, you know, until you just now said this, I did not know there was a relation between that crystal and and winning at the Luxor. <laughs> 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 but but there's a, I mean, and, and and you're talking about the the motion-based ride where you get the story of Osiris and. Oh, actually, he's there's there's both of those. There was the motion base, yeah, screen that wrapped around you horizontally, and then there was the one that I worked on, which was the screen that wrapped around you vertically, and every seat was a balcony seat. That's right. Boy, that was, was crazy, very stuff. ambitious, and you know it, it was there for a long time, but uh, it was. none of that is there anymore.
0: No, it's like that's we did a pretty good job on those kinds of projects when we pushed the envelope to. A new level at a sufficient quality that it could last in a in an industry where everything changes from year to year. If you could get to that fidelity so your thing survives for five years, that's amazing.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So any other CGI things that you can remember having to solve for Luxor before we move on to Stargate?
0: Huh. No, I think that's uh I'm I know I'm there's lots of things I could dredge up, and I not right offhand. Okay, well, we'll get to Judge Dredge in a second, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, okay, so so make the transition then from working on Luxor to working on Stargate. By the
0: time we got to Stargate, we had at, as you know, because you were part of this, we were kind of a boutique company, you know, with Kleiser-Walzak Construction Company, but the boutique approach included all of the tools necessary to do digital visual effects at very high resolution and frame rates. That's kind of what Luxor set us up for. I don't remember the details of how we landed the project. I was usually like, like I've mentioned before, I'm the guy that Jeff would call in when, when the vision that he was seeing required us to come up with the new techniques to solve them. But Roland Emmerich, the idea of this epic adventure across time and space through a portal. Oh my god, yeah, that was just a fabulous idea. So we as uh, you worked on Stargate with me, right? Oh we, yeah. And we had uh, we had a lot of different the Mecomorphs, didn't you work on the Mechomorphs? That that was me and
1: um, but what was great was being able to drive from our studio on uh, Sunset Boulevard down to Long Beach to the uh, to the Spruce Goose dome. Oh and, yeah, and go in there and actually see the Stargate that they were they were building physically. They built
0: a full scale Stargate using that soundstage. That's right, because we had the mother our mothership for Kleiser walzak was the back in the Berkshires, the studio there. But we had an office in Hollywood as well, and with a team working on it, uh, both places as well as some satellite people working. Yeah, the Stargate was you know that was a. A breakthrough thing for me to get to work on on that, because I was the um, set the visual visual effects supervisor for the Stargate effect, and this uh, on stage supervisor for the live action that set a, set the gag up, which was in that um, vast space. The Stargate was so impressive to see; it actually moved and rotated and everything.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are just like oh my god oh my god oh my god so what did you I I, I remember seeing initial drawings where you were figuring out where the camera was going to be and there there were what perspective we were going to look at that from and but you're pretty much the the
0: guy who created the water effect and the Carthage and all yeah that. it was Roland Emmerich as as a in my recollection, had the idea that he wanted the surface of the Stargate, instead of being crackling energy or or grid or anything like that, he wanted it to be something fluid and organic and dynamic. So he had the idea, I want it to be like water, but we'll turn it on its side. So it'll it'll remind you of water, but it'll then do things that water could never do. And Jeff Oken was the visual effects supervisor for the whole movie. And we got together and talked about that. And he goes, well, what do you what do you think he means by that? You know, (laughs) because it's like, it was almost like back in the able days, we wanted to make something new that reminded you of something you've never seen before, you know, so they have this kind of a mind meltdown when you saw it. Um, So I went off and started trying to figure out how we would do that, you know, looking at practical effects um, and whether the fluid simulation software at the time was very primitive. So I wrote a, a finite element model uh, program that would take a, a mesh of points and compute the propagation of force through it over time. So you could emulate ripples. You couldn't do a breaking wave or anything like that, but you could introduce an, a, a, a perturbation and then the ripples would propagate out from that. And if you could ray trace that and get a reflection in it, it looked pretty amazing. And so we set about trying to figure out how to you know, incorporate that into the live action plate of the actors walking up to this empty Stargate. And that's where all those um, drawings you talked about came into play because the important thing would be James Spader and Kurt Russell walking up toward this shimmering glowing surface and see themselves reflected in it as they touched it. Um, And, uh, oh, I could talk for a long time about that, but the main gag was the fact that the taking camera, the live action camera from the front was uh, duplicated on the backside of the empty Stargate with another camera at exactly the same distance away, but a um, reflected angle. So it was seeing what you would see through the, looking out through the Stargate. I uh, used that to create an animating texture map. We couldn't really, um, an animate a reflection map. We couldn't afford to ray trace in real time. So we used a reflection map because of the place, the accurate placement of the uh, two cameras the reflection worked. It was accurate. And they had to be synchronized in time. The, you know, the live action cameras had to be frame uh, you know, frame to frame accurate with each other. And we also put a laser, a little red laser light, in the plane of the imaginary stargate. You have to remember that Kurt uh, Russell and James Spader were walking up to an empty uh, stargate. The only thing that was there were there were a couple of grips shaking pieces of mylar with 10k lights shining on the the rippling mylar to create this kind of flickering light on the actor's face while they're standing in awe of something that's not even there, you know, a classic CG problem. (laughs) That worked out pretty well because the laser beam created a invisible plane where the, the Stargate was. And when James Bader reached his finger forward and touched it, we could see the little red line where his finger passed through the surface and use that as a um, point in our, because um, you know this is all digital by that point, we could take frame by frame the live action plate of him and rotoscope away his finger as it passed into the non-existent surface. There've been some great work done with that going forward from it, but that was pretty, pretty cool. Oh, and then of course we shot real uh, footage of, actual water to do the fluid simulation stuff that we couldn't do and that was in a big tank a big cylindrical tank with jeff oaken and roland emmerich and all the uh, you know prime cameras facing this tank with an air cannon facing down into it to blow a big blast of air into the tank and we were looking through the sides of the tank shooting wet for dry so what looks like water coming out of the air the uh Out of the Stargate was actually air going into the water. (laughs) It's an inverse. It was a great gag that way because it looked like water, but it was doing things that you couldn't figure out why it would do that. And combine that with the reflection effects and suddenly you've got the iconic, I'm simplifying of course, Eileen was the uh, TD that put all the pieces together to make it into a seamless whole.
1: That's Eileen O'Neill for our listeners. Yes, Eileen O'Neill. She was good. And also uh, Mary Nelson, I think, worked on a bunch of those. uh, Yeah.
0: It's weird when we remember these things, I always remember it from my perspective and it's easy to get caught up in the technology and forget about the fact that this kind of stuff, the scale that we were getting to here now requires uh, just like any movie, but even more so in CG, just the talent of a huge crew of people. You know, it's not I didn't do all that. I just helped provide the framework and the guidance for these very amazing and creative people like yourself to do it. Tell us about the Mechomorks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, well, we'll leave that for another time.
1: But okay, uh, I, I did uh, I did mention that when I was talking to Jeff. So uh, just for anybody who hasn't heard that yet, uh, this was at a time. Where we didn't really have either the technology to make perfectly believable CGI helmets, and we didn't have the technology to make them track perfectly, and we didn't have the technology to render it all in the amount of time that we needed. We could have, we did have the technology to composite it, we could have done that. So, what we ended up doing was using the actual pixels that were shot on set and uh, using a software called Elastic Reality to actually just kind of morph the pieces around uh, and, and make those shots
0: happen. It so. worked great. They w- were integrated in a continuity. A, per- a character would turn toward the screen and they're, and you know we, they do that in the Marvel movies all the time now. They have magical helmets that could dissolve and form. But that was the first time where you believed it and it wasn't like a locked off shot. Yes,
1: the cameras could continue moving with this technique that that we were using because we were just using the consecutive pixels from consecutive frames, so. That's right, great stuff. Well, thanks. Okay, oh, do you want to tell us about uh, the first time you sent some air into that uh, tank?
0: (laughs) Oh, that was was hilarious. So yeah, I, I kind of buzzed through it really fast, but it was a very large tank cylindrical glass tank that we were we had the the main taking camera two camera size I recall to film the practical effect that we hoped would become the Stargate that's that when the Stargate erupts and this big column of of what looks like water comes out. Like I said it was it was actually air going into the tank. So we had this air canning faced down into the tank. And um I don't remember Jeff Oak and my somebody was very eager to do it. You know, let's let's just fire the air cannon and see what happens. And I said, well, wait a second. We haven't really we don't really know how much this is going to how powerful the air cannon is. Maybe we should cover the cameras up with plastic and so forth. So uh, and is always the case. You don't have very much time. Uh, uh, well, let's just no, no, no. Take just a minute, you know, to cover it up. And so we counted down, pressed the, the solenoid release valve. The air cannon went off. You know blew air down into the tank and pretty much emptied the tank all over the whole sound stage <laughs> and water went everywhere and we were everyone was so glad that we had at least covered up the cameras.
1: <laughs> uh, that's great. So you basically saved the production with that uh, oh yeah quick well
0: thinking it probably wasn't only me but um we dialed it way back and then it started really looking good and I also did a lot of uh tests little underwater tests in a pool and things like that i don't remember whose idea it was but we also swirled the water to create uh, the strudel is what roland Emmerich Emmerich called it which was the stargate would would erupt out would come the curthudge out of the front you know and then it would the the uh reaction as it went the surface went back in would cause this spiral out of the back which linked to the transit tunnel to the other worlds and that was a practical effect as well. It's kind of a a, um, a water vortex. The carthudge and the strudel; those were Jeff Oken's terms, I believe. For those, <laughs> <laughs> and, and
1: that's how it really is out there, folks.
0: Yeah, and it became an iconic effect. You know, I mean, portal effects are so important in so many movies. Like you know, through the Looking Glass he has done stuff. Uh, Alice through the Looking similar. The idea of going through whatever portal that carries you to another world, that's the moment of transition. And I am happy with how well our effect, the, our Stargate effect, appeared to withstand the test of time. Just a, a shout out to
1: Jeff Williams, who did the uh, the roller coaster of effect through uh, space and time at the other end of that Stargate to, to, to transition
0: through the universe. That's um, right, because the Stargate linked you to that network. Our idea was that it was almost like they were a, a net, you know, it was a transportation network, but almost kind of like a neural network with little nodes that were linked by these transit tunnels. And just like the, one of the soldiers said, when you got to the end of that ride and you stepped out onto the planet, you go, whoa, what a rush.
1: Yeah, yep. yep. So, okay, after
0: Stargate, we moved into Judge Dredd. I helped work on the Lawmaster sequence to a large extent, you know, trying the idea there being the Lawmaster motorcycles were flying motorcycles that were very dynamic. They could fly up the sides of buildings and there was, you know, turbulence. And the problem was getting the live action characters to look like they were on. uh, We could do CG. Law masters, by that point, in fact, we could even use one of our early attempts at digital stunt doubles. so you could in the long shots have a law master with dread and uh, other characters riding them. But um, to get the movement accurate to, to look like they were really riding them, we had to incorporate real world physics and the way to do that was coming back to uh, motion capture so if you could put a person on a law master mock up. That was on a motion base and then have a motion capture system attached to that stunt person you could get you could move the lawmaster motorcycle and the person riding it would react and uh the the forces were correct it's one of those common problems we have in cg that um people may not understand all the math that's going on behind the scenes or the physics you know the mass and momentum and Forces and reactions. But when they when it's wrong, they can see it. People, we know through, you know, millions of years of evolution how to interpret the way things are supposed to look in the real world. So we set about trying to capture the way people really would react if they were flying a flying motorcycle and it was jerking around. So we built this giant mock-up of a lawmaster and we tried driving with a motion base. We also put handles on it so we could wobble it. We experimented with various motion capture systems, including flock of birds and also motion capture with Motion Analysis Corporation's uh, optical track. But the flock of birds was one of the first ones with magnetic sensors that you could wear a suit and it would in real time give you the position and orientation of all the sensors on a character's body. And we could do real time testing and see immediately rather than having to go off and solve the data and look at it later, which we had to do in those days with uh, motion analysis.
1: Just for our listeners, that's because those motion analysis were, were little visual cues that had to be filmed by cameras and then code had to be written to get you know to figure out which marker each camera was seeing so that it could be figured out to track that marker in space and it was a very optical and 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 secondary kind of uh, calculation problem whereas with magnetic it
0: was actually transmitting data. It was sending us the position and orientation of each of those markers in real time, which was revolutionary at the time. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ed, because the um, today that same technology that you just outlined is we could do it in we can do it in real time now. And so you see that when you go to all the shows, everybody's doing that in real time. Uh, but in those days, the amount of processing necessary to combine all those different camera views into one and keep track of all the markers was too expensive. So you would do a take then you process it and then you would review it. But our approach allowed us to do it in real time. And um, for the purposes of the fidelity of these law masters, they're flying around and, you know, bouncing and, and uh almost throwing their riders off. It looked great. And so was that the, uh, the, the big
1: kind of uh advance from Judge Dredd? Were there any other CGI? Um,
0: well, we did, I did some, um he, f- flies the the lawmaster through a plasma display, a giant billboard. It was like a 3D holographic plasma and it's opening and closing. And Judge Dredd makes it through just before the plasma reforms. And one of the, the, you know, one of the uh, (laughs) bad guys that's chasing him flies through it on his lawmaster and gets blown to smithereen. (laughs) But that was uh, nothing. That was standard by then technology that we used for that. That was the confusing days when Wavefront and Alias Research and several other companies were sort of milling around and Autodesk was figuring out how to buy them all up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. And and Maya was the end result of that. And I know uh, Jim Horahan was involved and uh, um Santa Barbara Studios with uh, with
0: coming up with the particle system that became part of That's right. That was a great particle system. I don't recall. I I believe we were using Wavefront's particle system at that time, although I had written a particle system as well. My particle system was super lightweight and could make millions of particles, but it couldn't do a lot of the fancier stuff. I'm very proud of the fact that my little particle system, I gave it to uh, Richard Bailey, Doc Bailey. It was one of his first particle systems that, uh, of course, he's renowned for what he did with Billions of particles and a lot of the feature work that he did. I'd like to think that, you know, he got to play in the sandbox with my original particle system as part of starting that. (laughs) That's great. And I know he was
1: active for years in uh, at at SIGGRAPH and doing the introduction to SIGGRAPH. That's right. Every year. Okay, so um, after Judge Dredd, the Rage Carry 2, is there anything you want to mention about that before we
0: move into the amazing adventures of Spider-Man? The Rage was was really interesting. I was the onset supervisor for a lot of the weird little effects that we did. There were lots of practical effects in that with uh, glass walls being shattered by her telekinetic powers, you know, when she comes back and takes her revenge and all the people that are treated her poorly and so um they had that fake glass that would blow the walls out with giant air cannons to blow them in onto the set uh, it was quite dangerous actually but uh, even with all that stuff we still needed to add uh cg debris and smoke and stuff like that so that was a integration into the live action plate um for in support you know i call them like secondary effects. We also did that for the a lot of there's a lot of flames she burned everything you know she burned the whole place to the ground. I didn't have anything to do with this, except that I had to work within the context of this great set that they built. Um, I think it was in Carolina, North Carolina, it was a, a building in which there was a huge opening in the skylight that they could evacuate all the air out of so they could light the whole set on fire with gas burn it for like 15, 20 seconds while a shot was on and then shut it down and put the fire out well enough that the whole place didn't burn down. And then we look at what we shot and then add effects to it and Bo Jansen did a really cool effect, I think he and the team, maybe back in. uh, In the Berkshires did this the shot of the tattoo on on her arm coming to life that was great do you remember that shot. I don't remember it, but, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who do. And it was and, like uh, and she had a little go find it. She had a little heart, I think, on her forearm. And this is when she really got mad. When she gets really mad, it's kind of like, you know, the power overcomes her. The telekinetic power passes through her. The, the tattoo started to grow, and it looks like a, a thorny vine that's wrapped around her arm and down her arm. And the camera is moving as she they see her face and you see this tattoo tracking and deforming the shape of her skin. And it was using the techniques that you started with the mechomorphs, but now applied to um, adding an effect right on the skin and making it look like the skin was being deformed. That was one of my favorite shots in that movie.
1: Wow, okay, well, now, (laughs) Spider-Man.
0: Spider-Man, Spider-Man. The Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man. That was a big project. Jeff um, Jeff
1: talked about squinching.
0: Squinching, so- yeah. Yeah, because there's lots of different things. That was my big uh, contribution to it. Kleiser Walzak was well-suited for this because of our reputation for being able to solve unusual problems and create beautiful solutions to them. And also because we weren't in Hollywood, because their Universal Studios' idea was to produce the ride kind of... Uh, on the sly and, and, you know, in a secret location. They had a big warehouse down in Orlando and then our studio, Jeff's studio in the Berkshires. But it was the idea of a dark ride where you wouldn't be able to tell what was real and what was imaginary or what was CG. In the tradition of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride is what I like to think of, you know, which was a, a car that runs through a dark, it's a dark ride, goes through on a track and different gags startle you and entertain you but this was taken to a whole nother level and the, their idea was to have multiple screens that would present the story step by step where the action and the characters you saw on the screens you couldn't tell whether they were there or they, whether they were cg and in order to do that you had to get rid of this um this artifact which is that when an image is projected onto a screen and you move your head from side to side or you walk past it, even if it looks great from one particular point of view, if you're moving past it, your mind immediately can see that it's a projection on a surface. It's, you're not looking through into a 3D world. And that's what the squinching solved. And you know, I could talk for hours about that, but it was, because it was a really cool idea. Um, and I wrote some weird algorithms to, to make that possible so that such that from the point of view of your car, as you're moving past a screen, we could have Spider-Man, as long as he didn't hit the edges of the screen, he could actually come forward. And to you, it looked like he landed on your car. And combine that with the amazing ride control hardware that they had, that they were evolving and developing while we were doing the graphics, you could have sound effects and air effects and the car could shake right when Spider-Man landed on your car, creating lots of sensory cues to reinforce the illusion that Spider-Man is right there. Look, mommy, <laughs>
1: and, and and it really worked. I mean, I remember going. I think it was uh, the Orlando Siggraph where yeah, we to put together a screening for select
0: folks to to, come got to go over and and get a, a custom ride of it. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I remember that moment really well when Spider-Man landed on the car, and he was like two feet in front of you, or th- you know, just three or four feet in front of you. It really looked like he was there. And also, I remember there was he came somebody crashed through a wall, probably Doc Ock, and, um, and one of the bricks from the wall comes and hits the windshield of the car and, it, and <laughs> it's going to hit you in the face. Yeah,
0: that was great. It was like 3D technology on steroids and, you know, the design of the animation, which we worked with uh, with Universal Studios team and our animators came up with a lot of those different gags, you know, to to make it really pay off.
1: It was really great. And I think, uh, well, actually, Jeff just said that it's still there. Yeah. uh, 10 years ago, he said they replaced the 70 millimeter footage. They've been playing
0: that thing off of a film strip for this long. Those films would only run for a certain period of time. Then they would have to print new ones. So it was incredibly expensive to say nothing of the bob and weave of the FilmGate, you know, and all the scratches that have evolved. They went to a pure digital system. They restored our archive and did a pass on the animation, improving the shaders and such. But it's still pretty much the animation that we developed because it was all locked to the way that the ride moved. But they re-rendered it with much higher fidelity and it still stands up. I'll, I'll bet
1: they did that not only because they wanted to, but because that was the only way they could render
0: it with using today's shaders. That's right. And they took our squinching, to be fair, it was their idea and they patented the idea of the, you know, cause we did it as work for hire, but they applied that those squinching techniques to the transformers ride. And then the Harry Potter ride, the whole idea of flying through a dark world and seeing things happening around you that you can't tell whether they're really real or not. It's really powerful stuff. Right. And that, Still has its roots back in the Luxor. That's right. Isn't that crazy? There's a, there's a theme here, isn't there? <laughs>
1: there, there certainly is. Okay. So, um, any other things about uh, Spider-Man of of CGI
0: historical import? Yes, there was a, a, a little, um, often overlooked contribution to all these movies today which is in the area of pre-visualization. You and I know all about how important pre-visualization is to getting a movie right, or in this case, a a ride. Um, But it's kind of unsung because you don't see it in the final result, but you see the fact that it's good. What Universal Studios did for Spider-Man is they built a physical mock-up, a model of the whole ride where the um, floor level of the imagined space was right about at table height and they made it possible for you to sit on a chair and ride around through the model with your head at the level where the um, the ride vehicle would be. Based on the scale of this model, where all the screens you pass by all the screens, I think there were 14 screens, including the toroidal screens and the flat screens. And they were trying to get an idea of what it would look like what the sight lines would be and so. We uh, thought that was a great idea, but we then built a um, CG model of the entire ride in Maya and then got motion data from Universal so we could drive a simulated ride vehicle through our CG model at exactly the same pace and timing as the proposed ride would run. And so we were able to, as a team, with Universal Studios and the the ride hardware guys, evolve the performance of those, when the car would turn, when it would thump, when Spider-Man landed on it, all those sorts of things. And we could iterate on it, as opposed to just waiting until the ride hardware was operational. We simulated the entire ride, including the screens that the animation was gonna be on. Because then in Maya, we could see the screens relative to the position of the ride. And that became central to the squinching working properly. So the illusion of the animation on the screens would hold up. But it also was a powerful tool for refining and extending um, the excitement of the ride because you could try moves out, try, you know, slowing the ride, Vehicle down and speeding up. How how far can you turn before you break the illusion? Pre-visualization for ride films was something I had never done. We did we've always done pre-vis for any kind of animation for a movie, but that was something that was very interesting. That is very interesting. And I didn't know that. When you do that pre-viz and then you get down to the that mysterious dark warehouse and see some film that you have you know the end process of all this stuff you created a piece of film you take it down there and run it you get in the vehicle and go holy shit it works it actually works <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great what a what a great feeling
1: a lot of that stuff was then to later inform the work that you did in vr you know in oh in yeah exactly. more like present uh time but we're gonna get there
0: we will it get was really fun. One a closing shot there was for me is the because we have people all over the place working on the Spider-Man ride. Periodically we would get together, because you in spite of the fact that you could pre-visit, you could not get the full effect unless you're there and the giant screens and everything. So we would fly down to Orlando, Jeff Williams and Jeff Kleiser and me and the rest of the team the animators. And I remember one time the soundstage wasn't open yet, but Jeff got out, dropped, stuck his laptop on the roof, you know, and set up his antenna so he could get connectivity, you know, and Jeff had a camera and and we were all dressed in black. We felt like we were some sort of (laughs) special ops guys going in to solve some technical problem, which we were really, but it really was exciting. You need to get some kind of
1: hat, black hat with the, you know, the equivalent of, oh, it should say CGI. (laughs) instead of
0: FBI CGI all right (laughs) no don't worry about it ma'am we're with the CGI team
1: there you go I'm sure we have a lot of fans of the X-Men movies
0: yeah what a what a great series of films those are and I was happy and lucky to uh, get to lead the team that did the mystique effects predominantly we did some other stuff in the movies but almost all mystique effects in X-Men 1 and X-Men 2 well, um you were on already, that project too, were you? Not? No, 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 I was not. I was already
1: at uh, ILM by that point. Talk about the evolution of the effect. Uh, and and then
0: you can tell a little bit about technical details
1: of, of how you got it to work. You
0: know, all of the characters in X-Men have these incredible powers. Some of them are more flamboyant, you know, or energy-based and stuff. Mystique's power to be able to shapeshift presented a unique challenge because she needed she had to turn into all of the different characters so th- that we had to make an effect passed over her body when she changed form, but then have it also match seamlessly into all the different characters that she was able to, um, become. So that was the main challenge. And we had Daniel Roisman writing their non-linear transform software that allowed us to do a shape shift that wasn't just, you know, a morph over of the whole body in one pass. We could control what part of the body would happen when. What we wanted to have was this idea that her body would organically go through a stage where it would partially dissolve and then reform itself. And this effect as it passed over her body would leave behind a normal looking human, for example, and then it would turn to this kind of almost squishy substance and then turn into mystique. And in that process, her little scales would come through the skin and erupt out and then grow and then lie down. And it all happened smoothly over time, driven by this process that had like a front, a wavefront that would pass along the skin. So, the ability to animate 3D texture maps to control that moment of transition, what they were controlling was a set of 3D assets that were the character animating both as Mystique and as the target character in 3D space. <laughs> I'm kind of getting tongue tied just trying to uh, describe it. But when it worked, it was pure magic because Rebecca would turn toward the camera and then. This, Would pass over her body, and the scales would erupt out and lay back down, and it was graceful and beautiful, not horrific. And so that was the coolest thing about mystique, in my mind, was that we were able to bring, make it seem almost effortless, and yet very dynamic at the same time. Does that make sense?
1: Well, it makes sense to me. I don't know how much it's going to make sense to people listening. You know, things like this
0: in words. Yeah, one of the things we were doing then at at that point we were um, refining the idea of high dynamic range environment probes. The idea was not new by that point, but of going on set and capturing you know three sixty images of the set to capture the lighting that was present on the real world actors. And so we had been doing that at low dynamic range. I worked with Paul Debevec who. Helped me figure out how we could capture these environment probes in HDR and then use them. We actually used a tool that he invented where we could convert those um, probes into high dynamic range individual light sources, which we could then emulate the real world lighting in CG without having to ray trace the whole thing. Still was too expensive to ray trace, which we can get to (laughs) later too. But uh, so getting that. the sense of the lighting being accurate on these effects while the character was still in the real world was was critical. And being able to make Mystique look like she was in the scene while she was transforming was a big part of our success.
1: That's also a technology that Paul DeBevick pretty much invented it. Right. Um, and it revolutionized everything that we do to make visual effects for movies. Because before that technique of capturing the world, we were trying to look at reference photos and trying That's to figure right. out where did where was this light positioned in 3D space? Where was this light positioned? What bulbs did they use? You know, how bright was this one? And we were just kind
0: of shooting in the dark. Yeah. (laughs) I was a big uh, fan and advocate for Paul's work on that. And one of the first tests we did for X-Men was to shoot some of those HDR reference environment maps and uh, light an arm as a single arm, a synthetic arm that a prototype mystique effect passed over. So a human arm turned into a mystique arm lit by uh, CG lights that mimicked the reference footage of the practical plate. And uh, that was what we took to the director and said, this is what we think we can do. And Mike Fink was a big supporter of us because he knew that that would be important in an effect like Mystique. It was not flashing in flames and things. It was a more intimate kind of thing to have her changing shape right before your eyes.
1: And it's become the signature effect from
0: the entire X-Men franchise. That's, I guess it has. And I remember one of the effects people from the subsequent movies that I didn't work on. uh, He had a quote like how they went back and looked at what we did and they went, oh my God, how did they do that? How we have to do better than that? (laughs) That made me pretty proud. (laughs) The next thing in IMDb is Corkscrew Hill. I wasn't involved in the actual production, but I helped Jeff set up the pre-visualization. Again, it was similar to Spider-Man, much smaller scale. But it was a very innovative ride in which the whole audience is in a box and the box is on a motion base. So when the audience is in this theater, the box moves around and then there's a screen that rides with you the whole time rather than um, a separate screen that's locked to the ground and you're on a motion base that moves. So we we simulated that. We set up kind of like what we did for Spider-Man. We simulated the... Geometry and the physical characteristics and sight lines of that theater and then had little 3D glasses that you could put on so you could uh, watch what the visuals would look like from any point in the. um, proposed audience theater for corkscrew hill because in corkscrew hill the whole audience gets shrunk down and they're inside a box that's being carried carried by some magical creatures through this weird landscape and you're looking out through the front of it. So, um, getting that, that's a really weird problem to solve to make you feel like you've been shrunk down and the scale is proper and, you know, um, have it pay off. So I got to work on figuring out how to prove that our approach was going to work.
1: Nice. Now there's something I'm, I'm, completely uh ignorant of and fascinated by just when i went to the imdb and i saw that you worked on this tv mini series called evolution
0: oh yeah that was for wgbh in boston i took a stab at running my own animation studio most of my work has been as independent consultant you know independent cg supervisor for other companies mostly because that's in in my experience it was the best way to get in all the resources that i needed to try out my harebrained ideas you know <laughs> i didn't have the resources individual by that point you know a small team could be put together and do some great work i decided to try it myself you know on a smaller scale so in lincoln massachusetts i set up a render farm in my basement and i hired four or five animators this was after i landed the project by talking to them um, lisa mirowitz was the producer at wgbh and they had this series all about evolution it was a really cool idea it's like a classic netflix series each segment was directed by a different director and would feature a certain amount of budget for visual effects to show off what does dna look like or what does uh it look like when someone sneezes what where do the uh where do the little viruses go through the air which you know particularly relevant in the age of COVID. Exactly. And then we also did the opening sequence where life starting as DNA, recombining and growing and evolving up through the water and plants and trees, finally manifesting itself into the tree of life, which was sort of the logo for the evolution series. It was a lot of work, and I had an animation team including Simon Shearer and Kevin Noon and some of the other people from Kleiser-Walzak. That was a, a big project, and it took several years to get it done. And it was exciting, really fun. They were more about cost-effective animation because we we had to have hominids that looked real, but you know you couldn't afford to do a full simulation and a lot of mocap, so it was hand animated, and uh, and it was having a variety of different. Uh, Effects in support of whatever the thesis of each segment was. So for me, that that was a it was a management challenge more than anything else.
1: <laughs> and that was uh, just for reference in two thousand two that that was going on. There's one more thing in your IMDb, and then we're going to move into games and and VR and AI and everything else that you've been into for the last couple of decades here. So how to boil a frog? What?
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. I worked with my friend John Cooksey and my wife Andy Savage was a producer on that How to Boil a Frog is a was a um, a project that John Cooksey put together you know about climate change and overshoot and uh, everything that could go possibly go wrong with our planet and it, he was he's very passionate about it and I helped him by making a little title sequence with it at the beginning um, which was the world with a little pot on the top of it and uh, a frog who is sitting in the pot, you know, as the water gradually heats up. Because, this, you know, the how to boil a frog is a metaphor for the fact that we don't notice that the change is happening so slowly and inexorably that most people don't realize it, that they're slowly going to be boiled alive. We did some fun, low budget animation for that show, including Stop Action that my wife directed and i figured out all the techniques for doing stop action animation using an id camera and a little stand and stuff like that and some CG as well
1: and you know just as a side note about uh climate change i'm sitting here in denver last night 700 homes in boulder just burned to the ground because we had super high winds that brought down power lines and right in the middle of highly residential area we we lost a lot of houses last night Fires and floods here in BC, you know. Yep. So, are you're living in BC? You're you're. Yeah. Are you officially a Canadian?
0: Yes, I am. When uh, when did you do that? Uh, I think it was in two thousand seven or eight, something like that. I'm a dual citizen, American and Canadian. There's a whole thing that happened with EA when I came up here to work on the convergence between the film industry and and gaming engines. But uh, after that, after that got underway. I took a job with um, EA in Stockholm, so we had a a dual residence. I lived in Stockholm and then also in Frankfurt, Germany, and my wife and I would be going back and forth. But we always maintained our residence um, here in West Vancouver. It's a beautiful place.
1: It is. I've been there for a couple of SIGGRAPHs now. We'll be there hopefully in person in. July or August of 2022, hopefully. If that comes on, there'll be a party at my house. We're we're there, um, <laughs> and in the long-standing tradition of SIGGRAPHs, of course. Exactly. Now that we have finished film, how did you get involved in the games industry? How did that transition
0: occur? We were using more and more um, real-time technology to. pre-visualization even some effects you know this was like in 2002 or three and i was starting to you know evangelize the idea of using game technology as a tool to support pre-visualization and development of concepts for films i was talking about this coming convergence between film and games and how the innovation had been happening in the movies and you know, brought to life in games, but now things were starting to invert and people would come up with ideas in games, even techniques in games that would make them their way back into movies. And I thought this was a really exciting kind of uh, direction that the whole industry was taking. Someone whom we all know, Glenn Entis from Pacific Data Images, PDI, had recently moved to Electronic Arts. And he was the chief visual officer. I thought that was the coolest title. He knew that I was talking about this stuff. And so he said, Frank, stop talking about it. Why don't you come up here to EA and make it so? He wooed me from Massachusetts to come to Vancouver, where he and Don Matrick were essentially running Electronic Arts from there. And he wooed me by saying, you will be able to set up your own team to investigate and develop Technology for this convergence of which you speak. <laughs> and so how could I turn that down? You know? <laughs> that, that was like a a silver key
1: on a platter or some gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like... nothing
0: ever works out as simply and easily as you hope it will, but that was the promise of it. So I came to Vancouver and we set up a team. We had lots of interesting projects. It was right at the beginning of the PlayStation 3 launch. So we took some of it of EA's software and managed to create a real-time playback rendering of two boxers it was that was it was like a conceptual piece for boxing and it wasn't real-time mocap but it was real-time cameras that could fly around this sequence and show you the quality and fidelity of movement and skin shaders and everything that we could do bringing over a lot of the Techniques we had invented in film characters, including Mystique and so forth. It was a very heady time. We had George Borshukov, who had worked on the Matrix films for the capture of the agents and Neo uh, skin shaders in real time. EA started taking a lot of our work and incorporating it into Fight Night, the game, and into Battlefield and stuff like that. I'm just going to read some of these to
1: our uh, listeners need for speed you were thanked on technology plants versus zombies garden warfare art, <laughs> art graphics ssx
0: i know uh, henry worked on that one right that's right and and also uh habib zargapur worked on the need for speed franchise there were already other people along with me who had were kind of crossing between games and and film and uh, Habib's on my hit list, believe me. For, oh, good, he's for, great.
1: For one of these interviews, uh, I've worked with him for many years at ILM. Sat next, right next to him uh, in our office when we were working on
0: Twister. So uh, he's Habib. always so calm. That's what I love about him. You know, he's he's doing this crazy stuff, and yet he's just, you know. It seems like everything is always under control. <laughs> always under
1: control, always got a smile on his face. So yeah. even tempered and 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 like you solving unbelievably technical problems. What were the things that you were inventing for those games that just hadn't
0: hadn't been done before? Good question. We we set up a bunch of different projects so some of the early things were the skin shaders getting the you know skin shaders that could capture translucency and ambient occlusion and being able to do those things in real time and there were lots of different ways to implement them so we tested those the real-time mocap was now a thing that we could do did even though you couldn't do that in a home the connects was coming online where you could do some real-time mocap if you could incorporate that in your game, you have to have a framework that could use it and then apply the shaders. And you only have a certain amount of computing power. So you have to divide up the shading with the processing of the animation and everything. But we were an R&D group. So we were testing things and trying to implement sample code that EA could use. So I didn't initially do anything directly in the games. I just provided technology. I also worked uh, continue my interest in high dynamic range, you know, now in real time, it's rather than capturing an environment map for a movie, we would try to render in high dynamic range in the game engine itself. And EA's, Paul Lalonde's graphics libraries there were one of some of the first ones that would allow us to run in real time in high dynamic range. So that was interesting.
1: It was a time, you know, the, uh, I guess, 2010s or 20-teens, whatever we yeah. want to call them, That was a time where so much game technology was going on, and you seem to be working with every one of the game platforms, Unreal, Unity, CryEngine. There was even
0: one I had not heard of. So compare and contrast. Wow, that's a big one. One of the cool acquisitions that EA made was DICE in Stockholm with the Frostbite engine. When EA decided to disband the fundamental research part that we had been doing, it was the worldwide visualization group that I was running under Glen Antis. They decided to focus more specifically on titles and consolidate it. because in those days, EA, which has grown by virtue of acquisition, they had invested and then acquired Dice. They also had um, a couple of studios down in Los Angeles. They had three or four different rendering platforms and they thought it would be a good idea to try to consolidate that. And so rather than having my group try to invent another whole one from scratch, they decided to figure out which ones would be the best. And I had an opportunity with Johan Anderson, genius guy at DICE. He wanted, he saw what we had been doing and he was in charge of the rendering for Frostbite. He invited me over to uh, Stockholm to talk about how we could further incorporate some of those ideas and advance the agenda for Frostbite. And I don't think he thought about this initially, but it became possible that Frostbite could become the engine for electronic arts. It was pretty funny because EA Sports at that time had an engine called Ignite. And the Ignite engine was the one that powered all of the sports games. And Frostbite powered uh, plant, well, later Plants vs. Zombies, but Battlefield primarily and Mirror's Edge and things like that. And so they decided to have a contest between Ignite and frostbite. <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> frost versus fire. This is a great uh metaphor, you know. And uh Jeff Skelton came over from EA to Stockholm and I would show him what we were doing, and we had all of this evaluation that eventually they decided on Frostbite, partly because by that time I had a group in Stockholm that was doing content creation tools and helping guide what was important for Frostbite while these genius programmers implemented it. And Frostbite had a clear roadmap to become the dominant engine within EA. So that was pretty cool. Frostbite was a proprietary engine. Frostbite was the engine for EA, and it could only be used by EA, whereas Unreal is a engine software platform that anybody can use. And so there was two opposing philosophies there that were very interesting you know it looks like unreal is one that's really winning in the long term now because of their success in a number of titles that they brought out that have allowed them to push the technology not only for their own games but for everybody's games so far and where would you go unreal versus unity that's been back and forth over the years i think their unity was more open source in the original iterations of it but then they became more proprietary while unreal became uh more open which it had been a closed system to start with more or less but now it's more open and they've released all of their source code my friend neil blumkamp is here in um are friends
1: with neil blumkamp the, yeah he's district got nine? his studio
0: what district nine yes exactly he wow. has oats studio is his operation here in vancouver and he is a unity studio and I've, uh, I haven't done any projects with them, but we've talked about some possibilities. And uh, he loves Unity. On the other hand, Kim Library at Unreal is a champion of all things new and cool through his avenues and uh, underwriting. They purchased 3Lateral or you know, acquired 3Lateral, which is the arguably the best um, scanning and facial animation system in the world. That's part of uh, Unreal now. So, there, the, all of these things we've been talking about continue to evolve, and different alliances form, and we're moving the bar every year. Let me throw two
1: two-letter acronyms at you. Okay, AI and VR.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh, that's those are we. Had, we could talk for an hour or more on each of those. Um, I guess I should throw it in the context of your. The chronology of my experience, uh, I didn't do much with AI at all until I got to AMD, which was my most recent large company. I, I was the creative director for Frostbite and then creative director for CryEngine. AMD is arguably one of the engines that power all of those different software platforms. AMD is a chip maker, correct? That's right. So this the I, that's why I'm kind of pausing because I don't know quite how to explain my uh, switching from software back into hardware. It kind of goes full circle from when I was designing hardware and now uh, back to the, the hardware that's running the software we've been talking about. AMD and NVIDIA, of course, are the big rivals. And AMD wants to be sure that their hardware and their plans for their hardware incorporate all of these things that we've been talking about. Their hardware runs PlayStation and Xbox and the big server farms they've they're in, you know, the Google and Amazon clouds, but they realize the importance of the publicity they get out of their hardware being there at the leading edge in gaming. And in fact, they make some of the best gaming laptops and things like that. So anyway, Carlos Silva at AMD did something similar to what happened to me with EA. He said, Frank, why don't you come and help us work on the actual hardware that's powering these things you're talking about? You know, the next, what is the next wave and how can AMD do that? So I spent three and a half years working for AMD, not directly on the hardware, but on immersive technologies. The idea there was what do we need from AMD and what do we need in the ecosystems to allow real-time technologies including AI real-time AI and virtual reality to flourish i created with my team in markham which is on the outskirts of toronto the immersive technology team there created as i usually do prototypes of various new techniques that show how you can marry reflection mapping the things we did for stargate you know offline we we showed how you could capture in real time high dynamic range video of your environment and then use that as the lighting for a character, which you then insert back into the video with a two frame delay. And now your character is being lit by the changing lighting of the real world, which you go, oh my God, this makes augmented reality. Now it's another way to make augmented reality more believable because it doesn't look like it's just flat composited. So we did a lot of things like that. And I got to work with the designers of the chips about what are the important things that you need to be able to do? Where is the computational power? We started exploring AI-driven characters where the behavior of the character would be leveraging all this motion capture data that we would have a library of behaviors that a character could do, but the actual decision and the blending between reactions to a a player or uh, a competitor would be not just mechanically triggered, but would be behaviorally modified by an evolving (laughs) AI. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. And so we're talking about intelligent agents, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's much more articulate way of putting it. Succinct. <laughs> You're always good with that. When we
1: started talking, we were talking about the vector graphics for Tron. Yeah. And and now we're up to AI driven autonomous characters for games. That's
0: right. That that interact with you in the in the real world, either through your phone or your, you know, your laptop in real yeah. time. And that seem to be lit by the environment they're looking at that you're yeah looking at. both amd and nvidia now have aspects of their hardware dedicated to real-time ray tracing and you know my laptop that i'm talking to you on right now has an nvidia 3080 chip for the graphics processor and it's got a ryzen uh, amd cpu so they're actually <laughs> collaborating together and it's capable of running real-time 60 frame per second ray tracing it just boggles the mind but you know it, it doesn't stop because you said it doesn't stop <laughs> um, <laughs> let,
1: let, let's kind of sum up where we are now in in the life of frank vitz because you know what's great about the people who worked in at the origins of cgi is we're all like you know 30 40 years older but we're still yeah. alive and still kicking and still doing stuff. So, two-part question. First part, looking back on your career up to this point, where do you see you fitting into the timeline of of CGI history
0: and then just muse a little bit about the future. Just looking at what we've talked about, I feel like I've been, you know, weaving in and out, you know, there's like this giant population of people working on things and I've been fortunate to be kind of jumping back and forth working in various parts of that as the front line of our knowledge progresses. So uh, I feel very fortunate about that because I've spanned, like you said, the timeline of a lot of it and various aspects of no one person can can be involved in everything, obviously. But so that makes me feel really good. And um, it feels like a lot of the things that I've been working on are coming to fruition. You know, the things we talked about in that Kenny Merman and I talked about in Tron that we could imagine then we can now do. And there's a sense that there's, it's like the toolkit is way bigger, the palette of tools and brushes that we can use, which opens up the best part of it, which is, you know, opportunity for creativity. I feel like I've been part of that. I uh, have come back home to West Vancouver from working with AMD So now I'm back to uh, Frank Fitt's Creative Technologies, you know, working. I I think I can still work on some projects on a consulting basis, one by one. That's my plan. I also have always loved digital music. So I've, I've been putting together my own high resolution digital audio system for capturing of high quality audio and processing it. And I'll probably be back with Jeff Pleiser on that again, because he's got a Dolby Atmos studio in his garage that I've been exercising with him periodically. I'm active in the VES. So I think I might work on that as well as something to do with SIGGRAPH. So I know you're very active in that. So I'll probably be turning to you for some ideas. I was consumed by computer graphics for so many years. And it actually wasn't the only thing I thought of along the way. Now I'm going to try to realize some of my other ideas like boat designs and, you know, electric technologies and things like that. Frank, this has been just the most fun. Maybe we'll update this in a couple of years. I really appreciate you doing this because it's fun to have someone uh, like yourself who's so knowledgeable about this field, look back through processes and the pathways that led us here and set it into some kind of perspective. The thing that Kenny and I noticed about how the things we do in our industry, it's unlike most other art forms. The technology is changing underfoot constantly and that has not changed yet. Even though we've gotten to the point now where you can't tell when you watch a movie, whether it's real or um, CG, it still continues to evolve and how we as artists cope with that and stay abreast of it and, you know, make sense of it and decide what we want to do with our uh, talent is just an ongoing problem and a challenge. So that's kind of a a way of saying, you know, that here we are and the magic never stops. (laughs)